The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, and see him down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Amarnath Amarasingham. Amar is an assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. He's also a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and an associate fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalization, both in London, England. His research interests are in radicalization, terrorism, diaspora politics, post-war reconstruction, and the sociology of religion. He's the author of Pain, Pride, and Politics, Sri Lankan Tamil Activism in Canada, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2015, and co-editor of Sri Lanka, The Struggle for Peace in the Aftermath of War, published by Hearst in 2016. Welcome to the podcast, Amar. Thanks very much. Uh, happy to be here. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? The main memory of my childhood is the famous 1993 home run by Joe Carter. So I was 11 when that happened, and it basically stopped time for me. <laughs> that was a major moment in my childhood. And I think even now, I still watch it on YouTube once in a while, because it was such a major moment for Toronto, a major moment in my childhood as well. I wasn't really a baseball fan for too long after that. I started playing basketball pretty seriously. And then, of course, Vince Carter came to Toronto, the Toronto Raptors in 1998. Having Vince in Toronto basically solidified my obsession with basketball since then. So I've, nothing's really changed since then. Okay. And what is your favorite political song? Ooh, uh, that's a tough one. So I'm a pretty big hip hop head. So this question could probably be a podcast by itself. But I would say, you know, anything by Tupac... Brenda's Got a Baby by Tupac, mm -hmm. Mad City by Kendrick Lamar, A Song for Asada by Common. I've been going back to a lot of the old Eminem stuff as well recently, Mosh, uh, White America, because there's this kind of debate online that's happening about you know, his place in hip-hop culture. And I think people forget that he was criticizing George W. Bush from the very beginning and now, then moved to criticizing Trump from the very beginning. And so there's all these kind of older tracks where he goes really in on the Bush administration, unlike most other rappers had at the time. And of course, partly possible because he's a white rapper and so on, but it's quite interesting to go back to some of these older tracks. Finally, what is your favorite political book? I was talking about this with a friend of mine recently, actually. A lot of my favorite books are things that had a major impact on me. I actually read during undergrad. One of the first books I read was White Power, White Pride by Betty Dobratz, I think is how you say her name, and I forget the second author. That had a huge impact in terms of the kind of research that could be done in this field. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright was a major book for me as well in, in the kind of terrorism field. So in the 21st century, when we talk about terrorism, many people think about religion and then in particular about Islam. What is the relationship between religion and terrorism? Part of the problem, I think, with this conversation is there's a lot of Western bias that feeds into what religion is supposed to look like, right? And, and so a lot of terrorism scholars, I find, aren't really up to date with the literature in religious studies, aren't really up to date with the literature and the sociology of religion. 
And so they talk about religion in a way that doesn't mesh with where the field is at. And I think there's this assumption that religion is supposed to disappear with modernity as modernity evolves, that religion is just supposed to vanish. And so when it comes back in full force with jihadist movements or when we see what's happening with the Hindutva movement in India or, you know, Sinhalese Buddhism in Sri Lanka, what have you, there's a bit of confusion about the role of religion in these movements. And therefore, I think there's a kind of tendency to go back to what terrorism scholars are comfortable with, which is economics and, you know, processes of radicalization and poverty, economic, foreign policy, etc. I think that doesn't mesh with how most people live their lives, right? I think if you travel the world or even in the US and Canada, outside of academia, most people don't make this mental distinction between religion and non-religion. Religion infuses how they think about history, how they think about their family, how they think about culture. And so to say that what is the impact of religion on something, as if it's this free-floating thing that once in a while has impact, is not how most people live their life, right? And so when we talk about the role of religion in terrorism, there's this obsession with finding that one cause of terrorism, which I don't think that's really possible. I think it's very much part and parcel of how a lot of these young people see the world, right? And so when you have a group like the Islamic State, the fundamental pushback, I think, against this idea of separation of religion from your political life and separation of religion from other aspects of your society, they want religion infused in society. They want the kingdom of God on earth, right? And so mm-hmm. I think we sometimes mistake how religion functions in these groups. And then because we don't understand it, we dismiss it and go to some of the other things that we're more comfortable with talking about. As a West European who grew up in the 70s, 80s, like mm-hmm. when I think about terrorism or when I thought about terrorism, I thought about mostly Marxist terrorism, left-wing terrorism, separatist terrorism, or even far-right terrorism. None of it was particularly religious So are you arguing that the distinction between religious terrorism and non-religious terrorism is useless, or are there specific aspects to religious terrorism? I mean, some people say that it is because they're religious that they engage in suicide terrorism. Is that too simple? I mean, I think I definitely think there are movements that are not religious, overtly religious. I mean, the Tamil Tigers that I've studied for a long time are not a religious movement. But I think the ecosystem in which they operate is fundamentally religious, right? They're pushing back against a Sinhala Buddhist conception of what the state is supposed to look like, what the role of minorities is in that context. It just so happens that Sinhala Buddhism manifested itself in policies that were quite secular, right? Education, land ownership, things like that. And so the response was quite secular. In other words, they didn't start persecuting Hindus and Christians, in which case the response might have been religious. It is a case by case in many ways, but I think in those cases where religion is kind of overtly religious, even then we misunderstand how that plays out. If you look at the far right, there is this complicated relationship with what far right groups mean when they talk about Western culture, right? Or there's kind of overt ones like the Aryan Nations and Christian Identity, Butler and so on, who talked very openly about making America white and Christian again. But there are these other groups that are fundamentally not religious, but see race in a very different way. So I do think you have to take it individually and take the worldview and ideology seriously. But I think in taking that ideology seriously, the role of religion must also be accounted for, right? And, and how, how it's kind of infused in how people see the world. We often say, you know, is it a group of guys thesis or is it religion or something like that? But religion often impacts the group of guys that you choose. Religion often impacts who you hang out with and who is an insider and who is an outsider, who is a sellout, who is not, who's damned and who's saved. And so even the group of guys that you choose, which might be important for radicalization later on, is colored by your worldview. These identities are fluid and multifaceted, not necessarily just these free-floating ideas that people can use and dismiss at will. 
if I can go off on that then, because I'm not totally sure whether you now argue that religion isn't that important or religion is very important, but in a different way than we generally think. I think the extent of the religion conversation sometimes in terrorism studies is the knowledge of religion, right? And so we have people say things like, there were two British guys arrested at the airport in London, and they had Islam for dummies in their backpacks. And therefore, they don't know anything about Islam. Therefore, their reason for going to Syria isn't religious, right? And I think that misses a a kind of important distinction that sociologists of religion make between religious knowledge and religiosity, Most religions have this separation in their groups between the kind of knowledgeable elite, the clergy, and then the lay people, right? And confusing that distinction and to say, because this 20-year-old convert from London didn't know about Islam, that he wasn't still willing to die and fight and kill for his beliefs, is that mistake. It's confusing religious knowledge for religiosity. The parallel I often draw is like American soldiers, right? American soldiers are patriotic. They would fight and die for the Constitution. They would kill for the Constitution, but they may not be experts on the Constitution. So there's a distinction that you have to make between kind of trivia of your religion and how expert you are on the history and ideas of the religion and your kind of emotional and psychological commitment to a community of belief and what you're willing to do and die for that community. And so this idea that because they didn't know about Islam, that it's not important, I think misses the point entirely. So you already indicated that you devoted a lot of time studying terrorism in Sri Lanka, in particularly the Tamil Tigers. Yeah. What did this group particularly contribute to your knowledge of terrorism and perhaps the relationship between religion and terrorism as well? You know, I'm Tamil myself. I came to Canada as a refugee. I have family in Sri Lanka. I have an obvious connection to the country. Sri Lanka became an important case study for me when I started thinking about the main question that I still think about all the time is what drives people to become violent? What are the kind of trigger points that lead people to see violence as justified or necessary or fundamentally necessary? Answering that question has been obviously quite difficult. (laughs) Um, But what the LTT was important for in that journey was I interviewed a lot of former fighters right after the end of the war, and it became clear that their reasons for joining were much more in your face than, let's say, why kids left for Syria from Canada. Because these were guys who had family members killed, they had siblings kidnapped and sexually abused or tortured, lived under bombing, lived under constant political discrimination and and things like that. And so their response was... The LTT was the only movement that was strong at the time and was fighting for our cause and et cetera. And, and that became a quite an attractive thing, which is quite different than a lot of the movements that we're seeing now, which is it's very vicarious trauma. This idea that my people over there are being abused. 20-year-old Muslim kid from Calgary or from London hasn't experienced torture and all of these things directly, but the in-group that I identify with in whatever country is experiencing this trauma, and I have a fundamental obligation to do something about it. That doesn't have to be necessarily religious. We have a similar conversation happening on the far right with you know white genocide, great replacement ideas that our kind of cultural heritage is being eroded. But I think that shift was important in my kind of academic journey from kind of looking at these direct personal experiences of why people joined the movement to understanding kind of the more transnational element that I look more at now. Yeah, I interviewed Kasper Rikawek a short while ago about far right foreign fighters in Ukraine and kind of their motivations and. I also asked him about comparisons to a certain extent with foreign fighters in Iraq and Syria, which is something you studied, Canadians who fight in Iraq and Syria. 
is this a large group and why do they fight? Is this, as you just indicated, this identification with the broader Muslim community or is there also an element of adventurism? The Canadian numbers are entirely different than I think what you guys are used to with the European numbers. Uh, we only have about 90 that went. And even that, I would say, is, is divided fairly neatly between, I would say, mid-2013 and after. The guys that left in 2012, 2013, 2014, the kind of first wave joined a whole host of movements, including the Islamic State, but also Jabhat al-Nusra, a lot of other non-listed entities in Canada, rebel groups. And for them, it was very much oriented towards the Syrian revolution, getting rid of Assad. They had very local goals of, of getting rid of Assad, and then they were going to leave, right? This wasn't a kind of large-scale campaign, etc. Once the caliphate was declared in 2014, June, the people that left after that were quite different. They were more Puritan. They were more religious. You know, they were saying things like, we're going to plant the flag of Islam on the White House lawn, that sort of thing, right? So it was much more of an expansionist movement. Some of the guys I interviewed, you know, in 2016, 2017, weren't even talking about Assad anymore. You know, that was a kind of old news. When you ask them about the Syrian revolution, they'd be like, who cares about the Syrian revolution? You know, we have built a caliphate. Now it's now about expanding that caliphate, defending that caliphate, etc. And so I think the motivations were quite different in those two phases. Some of them hopped groups later on. You know, they started with the rebel group and they joined ISIS later and so on. So I think, I think it, it does get complicated in terms of why they went there. A lot of the idea that a lot of women left, you know, because they were in love or they went there to marry some fighter, um, you know, there is evidence of that on the Canadian side as well as in Europe and the UK. But I think we present this stuff as the majority, but I've often found that it's actually only a few people who went with those motivations. Most of the others went for rational, legitimate political goals that we may disagree with, but I think it was a very thought out decision. And this is another major distinction, I think, from the European counterparts is a lot of them were well-educated, a lot of them were wealthy, you know, a lot of them thought about their role in the jihad movement in a, in a more sophisticated way. I remember one guy in Europe actually telling me, you know, I came because I was legitimately concerned that I would be asked in the afterlife, what did you do during the war? And so there is this kind of guilt in the face of such injustice. They felt like they had to actually do something more than, you know, write a letter to your member of parliament or your senator or post on Facebook or something <laughs> like that. Like something more was required of them, right? Um, yeah. That I think drove a lot of people early on, but also post-2014. There's a debate about motivations of young Muslims, particularly Western Muslims, why they join ISIS or jihadi terrorism. And it's linked to two French terrorism scholars, uh, Gilles mm. Tepel and Oliver Roy. Could you summarize this debate and say where you stand on the basis of the situation in Canada? Yeah, the debate between Gilles Keppel and Olivier Roy is heated. <laughs> and it's often on, on the stuff that we've been already talking about, which is the role of religion versus the role of other factors or the role of ground realities in France and so on. So Gilles Keppel basically argues that the reality in France, the discrimination on the ground in France, kind of societal factors in France, the failure of integration, etc., has led to the radicalization of Islam. Olivier Roy basically says that the answers are a bit more individual, a bit more ideological. Their kind of criminal pasts are quite important. He reverses Keppel to basically say we're seeing the Islamization of radicalism, right? So these people are already radicals, already criminals, already looking to do something violent. And Islam is the new kind of jacket they've put on in, right. in this quest. It's a kind of fundamental disagreement, which I also think doesn't need to be a disagreement. <laughs> 
all the evidence kind of points to both of those being true, right? I don't think they need to be separated in many ways. Of course, local discrimination and growing up as a second generation immigrant in places like France or Canada, or the US has an impact. Of course, failure of integration has an impact. Of course, being targeted by the state for wearing a niqab or wearing a hijab or being an overt Muslim or an openly practicing Muslim and the failure of integration that might indicate has an impact. That is very hard to deny that those aren't important for young people. Does that draw people to more radicalized ideas? Maybe. Some of them do, some of them don't. What was clear to me during the kind of Syria campaign or the foreign fighter campaign is a lot of these young people who had experienced all of this discrimination, hardship growing up in Western countries, etc., facing racism on the bus and being yelled at on the bus by people, feeling like even though you're very well educated that you're never going to get anywhere. And then the Syrian revolution starts, and they actually took a lot of these concerns to their religious leaders and scholars and parents, etc., and said, what is my job here? What do I have to do? And a lot of religious leaders at the time basically said, in Canada at least, we don't talk about that here. We don't talk about politics, the mosque, we don't talk about these things here. And so they went elsewhere, right? They went online, they listened to Anwar Aulaki videos, they got in on Twitter and Facebook and talked to other people who were posting about the Syrian revolution. And so they got into a kind of ideological interpretation of what was happening. And so you see what I'm saying here in that Keppelin was kind of a continuum or kind of a holistic worldview, I think, that most sociological studies point to a kind of ecosystem of how these people go through this process. But they've unnecessarily, I think, decided that it has to be one or the other mm -hmm. um, and then started hating each other for it. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure why that happened. It's a very classic academic story, <laughs> I think. Yeah, because they were friends for like 20 years or something. When I first learned about it, I was expecting some major flashpoint, you know, like someone had talked about the other's wife or something like that. Um, when in fact, it was like this fairly small difference of opinion. And I'm just like, I don't know why you guys are fighting about this, because you're both right and you're both wrong at the same time. So let's focus a little bit on far-right terrorism, which has been ignored for almost two decades in the wake of 9-11, but has come back with a vengeance and is also increasingly included in the debate. Are there particular aspects of far-right terrorism that are different, for example, from jihadi terrorism? I got asked this quite recently as well, and it's, it's a tricky one because I think there are obvious differences in the fact that Salafi jihadism or you know groups like ISIS are quite overtly religious about how they think about these things. But I do think there are interesting parallels that a lot of people haven't unearthed. You know, this sense of a golden age, for example, both of these groups have in common. For groups like ISIS, it's the you know pious predecessors, as they call it, the early followers of the prophet. For the far right, there's this kind of early golden age when white people were thriving and they were able to be proud of who they are and practice their culture out in the open. And then there's this common assumption of progressive loss of that culture and then the need to kind of fight back for it. And then also a, a sense of a future golden age, right, of what, what this looks like jihadist terms, it's the caliphate. And for the far right, it's white ethno state, I guess. <laughs> um, and so there are kind of elements, I guess, if you kind of took a bird's eye approach, have commonalities there. But I think the differences make all the difference, right? As they say, <laughs> I think the details are quite important to pay attention to. The kind of ideological differences are quite important. But there are broader psychological or sociological parallels that could be unpacked. I don't want to go all 51st state here, but... <laughs> Traditionally, 
Canada is very influenced by the U.S. and the Canadian far right in particular has always been very influenced by the U.S. far right. And in many ways, a lot of the Canadian far right was kind of more a Canadian branch of the U.S. far right than independent far right. Canada is now a bit seen as this last outlier, this last Western democracy that doesn't have a strong far-right party because the Conservative Party didn't really go there, at least not yet. What is the situation of the far-right in Canada and is there a threat of far-right violence in Canada? Yes, it is growing. It's not the same level of threat, I would say, in the US or parts of Europe. We have a fairly vibrant sovereign citizen movement. We have a fairly vibrant far-right movement. I don't know how large some of these groups are. It's often difficult to know in terms of numbers, whether there are three guys with a hangover and a flag or or whether it's an actual broader movement. But we do have a lot of these groups in Canada. And to their credit, Public Safety Canada, CSIS and the RCMP have paid a lot more attention since I would say Charlottesville and particularly since New Zealand to the local threat. And so I do think we're paying attention The threat report that the government put out last year still put ISIS and Al-Qaeda-inspired violence as the number one threat in Canada, but they did add a whole host of other things to the list that people weren't expecting, such as xenophobic violence, like anti-Chinese violence or ethnic-based violence. They added anti-authority groups like the sovereign citizens. They even added gender-based violence, which I don't think we've talked about really in Canada for a long time, such as the incels and anti-LGBTQ violence. And so I think while they say that ISIS al-Qaeda inspired violence is still the number one threat, they haven't ignored now this kind of vast diversity of ideologies that has popped up over the last little while that we all have to now pay attention to. But in Canada, the policy conversation is quite different. We don't really talk too much about ideas here. The government cares when you mobilize to violence. If you've showed a propensity to mobilize to violence, that's when the state resources in you know, the CVE industry and all these things start to wake up. We don't really care that you believe weird things until you actually do something about it. And so I think it's a more measured conversation here for the time being. We'll see where it goes. But I think it's not really the same as the UK or US in terms of how we talk about terrorism or extremism here. So circling it back, what is the most important misperception about the relationship between religion and terrorism? I would say it's kind of what I mentioned earlier, this difference between religion and religiosity. I think there's a assumption amongst many of how people actually live their lives, right? And how religion influences their everyday life and how religion influences their worldview. And that's quite different and separate from how knowledgeable they are about their religion. And so mm-hmm. the idea that you don't know anything about your religion or that you're new to the religion is entirely separate from your emotional and psychological commitment to that religion. And those two things, I think, need to be kept separate for analytical reasons and to understand what these young people are thinking and doing. Yeah. And this is very similar to the far right. Like Christian Picciolini said this in the show as well, that the people who join far right groups, including violent groups, they don't read Mein Kampf the whole time. They have barely any knowledge of Nazi ideology but it does play a role. They are attracted to certain elements of it. There's a symbolic role, yeah. The symbolic role that some of these things have is quite important. Nobody is sitting around watching all of Aulaki videos or reading the thousands of pages that he's written or reading Mein Kampf, but they have these kind of symbolic importance that still mobilizes, right? And is still capable of getting people out of their seats. So yeah, making that distinction is quite important. It's not just about what they know. It's about how they feel and, and what they're willing to do about it. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Amar. For sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. If you want to know more about Amarnath Amarasingam, you can go to his website, amarnathamarasingam.academia.edu. 
And you can also follow him on Twitter at, at Amar, Amarasingham and on Instagram at, at that Amar guy. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm seeing that a dunk out. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.